0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Katie Coldiron, and I have the pleasure today to be interviewing Alina Van Omen, author of Nicaragua Must Survive, Sandinista Revolutionary Diplomacy in the Global Cold War, released late last year from the University of California Press. Alina is lecturer in contemporary history at the University of Leeds. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alina.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So what I like to start off these podcasts with is just asking the authors um you know how did this work really come to be
1: Yeah um yeah with this kind of question you always kind of look back at your own past and you all make it into one coherent narrative and I just wanted to start off by saying like it, it wasn't like that like I never thought I would have write I would have written this book and I could have gone I think in many different directions but so to, to to create that narrative then, I guess looking back, it it started for me in, in Groningen. Uh, this is the my hometown, the city, a city in the Netherlands where I grew up and where I also studied for my undergrad history. And there I took a course called Project for the World. And it was about kind of the hopes and aspirations of peoples in the global south to create this kind of better uh, world order, uh, more equal, and more just. And And then I wrote an essay about Che Guevara and him going to the Congo and failing to start a uh, revolution there. And it wasn't a great essay, I think, but it really sparked, like it was the start of kind of this journey. And um, then when I went to London, I I went to the LSE for my master's and I was more interested in in Latin American history. uh, And I met Tanya Harmer um, and she kind of, was really a source of inspiration. And then I wrote my master's dissertation about uh, the Nicaraguan Revolution and its impact in the Netherlands. And that was really about kind of the solidarity activists in the Netherlands that supported the revolution. And it was, it was nice, but then in, these, in the archive, and I did most of my research in the International History, the International Institute, Institute of Social History in Amsterdam, I, I just came across a lot of letters from the FSL and from quite high-ranking kind of Sandinista officials and it was just a surprise to me because I thought why why would these kind of important figures in Nicaragua in the revolution like be interested in these non-state groups these kind of small left-wing organizations in the Netherlands Um, and then I realized to kind of answer this question I need to kind of go to Nicaragua and I need to kind of place this kind of particular Dutch story into this broader history uh, of the Sandinistas' revolutionary diplomacy. So that really got me started uh, with the book.
0: Thank you so much for that. A very interesting origin story. And I love when uh, work is guided by what you're finding in the archives. So, as an archivist myself. So, um, moving on, a key theme throughout the book is the idea of revolutionary diplomacy, obviously, uh, which you trace from the struggle and ultimate success of the Nicaraguan Revolution to 1990, when democratic elections ultimately oust FSO and leader Daniel Ortega from power. So, what I want to ask you is, what does revolutionary diplomacy mean, and how did the concept change throughout the post samosa years up until 1990?
1: Yeah, great question. So, yeah, the idea of the concept or the idea of revolution, <laughs> revolutionary diplomacy, um, is really what I use to describe uh, the foreign policy of the FSLN of the Sandinistas, and of both before the 1979 victory and and after. And um and I use it because I think even though the FSLN was inspired by like earlier examples of revolutionary diplomacy in Cuba or the Palestine Liberation Organization or Algeria, their foreign diplomacy or the revolutionary diplomacy was in many ways very unique um, and 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 special. So In a way, it was them changing, wanting to change the world. So it was not just kind of normal day-to-day diplomacy to get by, so to say. It was really also an attempt to create a revolutionary world. So what they saw as their own revolution was the beginning of many more revolutions. So in that sense, uh, it was about creating a new world order. So there was that ambition there. And obviously, when they are still um, a revolutionary movement, so not in power... They um, employ this unique kind of global strategy to uh, make the revolution a success. And that works out really well, because for a long time, even in the 70s, the FSLN is kind of a small, isolated group of guerrillas in the mountains. But that changes rather quickly when they start to launch this global uh, revolutionary diplomacy, which is really targeted towards making them appear more kind of yeah, acceptable in a way to more moderate groups. Um, So they kind of consciously make the decision to claim that we are not like another Latin American group of left wing guerrillas like the Cubans. We are different. We are like, we're building a new sort of revolution. We're fighting for, well, they tailored their message towards their audience, but we're fighting for either democracy or we're fighting for human rights. But they really used this revolutionary diplomacy to make them... Appear to the international community as the legitimate representative of the Nicaraguan government. And before coming to power, that is in a way relatively easy, because their main message is we are anti somoza So we want to get rid of this dictator that is violating human rights. And, it, and to do so, they made, built connections with uh, states, but also, and that's a part of the book, with these transnational activists um, that they then use to um, spread awareness about the revolution, but also to get money, to buy weapons. Um, and then when they come to power, that, revol- that shifts, obviously, because then they're suddenly in power, they're in charge of a state and their priorities change. Um, which makes sense. They need to build a new foreign government, a foreign s- civil service. Um, they need money, so they're they're focusing more, in the, especially in the beginning, on building relations with governments who actually can provide them with that money, which is Western European governments, but also Latin American governments, also in the Soviet Union, Soviet bloc. And then uh, these solidarity activists are not necessarily always appreciative of that in the early years because they are used to this kind of relationship between equals in a way before the revolution the sandinista representative would just come they would often stay at people's houses in, in Europe it was more they went to the, the pub like they had like it felt especially to these activists as equal one and then suddenly they are in power and then I rem- there's an episode in the book when they come uh the like I think, I forgot who exactly it was. Sergio Ramirez is definitely there. And they come and they expect to meet with high-ranking government officials. But the activists are more, uh, they have their own, like, they brought their own car. And the Sandinistas like, we need an official car. And it's like, we, they have to really explain, like, we are no longer on kind of equal footing, as they say. So the, the, the way revolutionary diplomacy is implemented and the way um, the Sandinistas use it changes when they come to power. And it changes further throughout the 1980s as well, because um, they basically need to get more defensive. So rather soon in the early 1980s, this kind of hopes of a new world order, um, they they disappear and it's, I mean, they have to focus more on the defense of the revolution, which is obviously under uh, increasing pressure by the United States. When Reagan comes to power, the Contra war starts. Um, there's economic problems because of uh, US pressure, but also because there is the death crisis going on, the like global financial crisis. Um, so the revolutionary diplomacy becomes more about, about survival, hence the, the title of the book Nicaragua must survive. Um, and then in the late 1980s, uh, which is a bit ironic, but the Sandinistas' revolutionary diplomacy, I argue in the book as well, is a success. because because of the Cold War framework, because the has very smartly and strategically use the Cold War framework to their own advantage by, by constantly saying that either transcending the Cold War, so saying actually, if to the Western Europeans, if you don't provide us with aid, we would be forced to turn to the East, or also by um, using this kind of Cold War uh, non-alignment narrative to to get support as well by saying we actually what is happening here has nothing to do with the Cold War, but because so many people are disillusioned by the Cold War at that time in the early 1980s, that actually appeals. But then in the late 1980s when these kind of Cold War tensions decline, that argument that loses its, its, its potency, because the Europe when they say, well, we need financial aid, the Europeans can just say, well, you can really no longer turn to the Soviet Union because they're no longer providing you with financial aid. So why would we? So then the revolutionary diplomacy kind of becomes a lot less successful and it falls into less fertile ground as the Cold War comes to an end as well. Thank you so much for that. Um, So I'm glad you you brought up the Cold War
0: framework um, because that leads into the next question. Obviously, as this is a Cold War era story, the roles of the superpowers are important, but they aren't most of the story in this work. So if you could, um, you already alluded to this a little bit. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the roles of the Soviet Union and the United States in this story? And also why you ultimately focus more on Western Europe?
1: Yes, of course. So, uh, yeah, I just want to start off by saying, like, by my my choice to focus on Western Europe is is not saying that like the superpowers didn't matter obviously, um. And there have also been already um some brilliant books on, for instance, the United States' role in Central America, and also about the United States' solidarity by Roger Peace, for instance, and Michael William Smithley has written an excellent book about Reagan's foreign policy towards Nicaragua. So that all matters. Um. So to briefly. Uh, explain what the US the US role. Um, you had three presidencies during the Sandinista revolution. So obviously, it was Carter first, and then you had Reagan, and then Bush in the, in the revolution's final years. Um, and the main thing to mention is that uh, Carter's kind of human rights policy was kind of uh, mixed in a way. So In the beginning, he's quite critical of Somoza, but then when kind of push comes to shove and the danger of the FSLN taking over becomes clear, and then the Carter administration also, um, for instance, writes to the European government saying that they should not support the FSLN, and so it's kind of a a mixed bag there. But then the Sandinistas has come to power, and very soon after Reagan comes to power, and he's very clearly against uh, what the Sandinistas are trying to achieve. Um, and also, they, they consider Central America to be very important. So there's a the famous quote by Jean Kirkpatrick that Central America is just the most important place in the world right now. And that's, I think, very clear in the United States foreign policy. So Reagan uh, puts a lot of economic pressure on the Sandinista government, um, but he also um, provides the counter-insurgents, counter-revolutionaries uh, with financial aid uh, and support and political backing. Like He presents them as freedom fighters. So I just want to briefly say now that on the one hand, obviously there is the whole narrative that all the Contras, all those who opposed the Sandinistas were uh, CIA-backed and or CIA puppets. Which is not, which is not the case. Like the we all know now about like people who are genuinely disillusioned with the Sandinistas. We know about the Mosquito Coast and the indigenous struggle against um the Sandinista government, which is which is very which is not very deeply covered in the book, but is important to mention here. So now the scholarship is kind of both were there. So this is there was nationalist genuine. Uh, resentment against the FSLM, but there was also the CIA, and the contrast wouldn't have been as strong as it wasn't for the United States military support for them. Um, And then, so that's basically the U.S. role. They try to isolate the Sandinistas, they put pressure on the Sandinistas, and they hope that they will lose power. When Bush then comes to power, that strategy shifts a bit because then there is he's more uh, willing to back the idea that that the FSLN would lose power in elections, um, and then we obviously don't know what would have happened if the FSLN would have won the nineteen ninety elections, um, because Bush doesn't like he continues to support the contrast until the elections, but his position was quite difficult, different because he won. There was in the end there was the option of the Salinas I mean, staying in power, uh, which wasn't really the case on the Reagan. So that's in a nutshell is the U.S. role, and then. The Soviet Union we know a bit less about, but there is um, some research being done. Uh, and I myself, I also did research in the East German archives, which gives us a bit of insight in, in the Soviet Union's role. Um, and what we know is that until the revolution triumphs, the Soviet Union is basically, they're not involved. But then um, they obviously welcome it because they see that this is something that the U.S. is, 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 is going to help them in the Cold War context. And throughout the 1980s, they do give the Sandinistas military support and financial aid, provide advice as well. But there's always some reluctance also because of kind of financial issues within the Soviet Union itself. Also because they are a bit suspicious of the Sandinistas like, revolutionary zeal, if they are actually like, um, like the Cubans. So, and it's definitely the Cubans who play the more active role in supporting the Sandinistas and it's the Cubans as well, who kind of pushed the Soviet Union to back the FSLM. Um, so I would say that definitely the Cuban government is, is more important uh, here. So in this kind of Cold War, context and with these major players, why do I, I focus mostly on, on Western Europe in the book? Um, and I think the key reason for me is that it shows more than anything else, is kind of the, the ingenuity and the creativity of the Sandinistas' revolutionary diplomacy. Um, it really highlights how kind of pragmatic and, and smart they were in trying to protect the revolution. And it's also because... Um, it shows the revolution's global impact. So a lot of kind of these Cold War histories of Latin America have kind of an an inter-American framework focused mostly on on the Americas. And I think in in my book, by by focusing on Western Europe, I showed that this was actually much more global and that Latin Americans had an impact beyond the Western Hemisphere. Um, So um, while Europe wasn't the, the biggest player, it mattered so much for the FSLN as well, because they believe that uh, this European involvement could kind of tip the inter-American balance in, in their favor. Um, so that's why I think the, the focus on Europe here really highlights uh, a surprising uh, element of the of revolutionary diplomacy. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, so kind of,
0: you've already alluded to this a bit, um, but... What were like the Western European government's role in the Nicaraguan revolution from its rise to its ultimate decline?
1: Yeah, great question. So before kind of getting into the role, just briefly, so you had Western Europe, but you had the European community as well. So that initially was nine Western European states, but then... Greece joins in 1981, and in 1986, Spain and Portugal also join. So they have the 12 European community states. And throughout the 1980s and, and the 70s, they coordinate parts of their foreign policy towards this kind of framework called European political cooperation. Very exciting. But so, um, and this kind of Western Europe, so the Western Europeans, when I talk about Western European foreign policy, I mean that that the Western Europeans, like they did have one coordinated foreign policy. There was also bilateral relations, and I talk about it in the book as well. But this kind of Western European initiative was truly a European initiative, Western European initiative. So in in the lead up to the revolution, um, the Sandinistas reached out to Western European governments, and they say, well, um, we're fighting here. It's not a Cold War struggle. And you can, by supporting us, also make sure that this is not going to become a Cold War struggle. And the Western Europeans are are excited about that because they think that by supporting the Sandinistas or by supporting the anti-Somoza opposition, they can make sure that uh, we there won't be a second Cuba. Basically, so they 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 think of what happened to the Cuban Revolution and how and how Cuba essentially became isolated, and they say. If we support the Sandinistas now or the anti-Samosa movement now, we can prevent this from happening and we can have an influence on the future of the revolution. They kind of want to have a moderating influence. So that's what they're trying to do by saying that Somoza should go. And also immediately after the revolution's victory by sending lots of financial support, when supporting the literacy campaign, really... Um, hoping to influence the trajectory of the revolution and making it kind of a third way. So the Socialist International is is very heavily involved there as well. Um, And especially in the early 80s, these are governments that are also in power. So the Socialist Social Democratic Parties are in power in a couple European countries. Um, And then beyond supporting the Nicaraguan revolution, um, Throughout the 1980s, from the mid- fairly quickly, actually, there's quite some disillusionment that actually there's no way we can actually influence directly what's happening in Nicaragua. But they are very concerned about the United States role, and they are very concerned about um what is happening in Central America having a navigative impact on the global Cold War. So especially the West Germans, they're very worried that the Soviet Union can use... Um, what's happening in Central America as a means to uh, prevent like weapons being rede- redeployed in Europe. So they see this in a really global Cold War framework, and they've, they worry that Central America can be used as a pawn against them in this kind of global Cold War game. And they think that Reagan is making this worse by militarizing the situation. So what they then do is support um, Latin American initiative to find a different solution. And particularly this idea that not the Cold War, but economic and social problems are behind this violence. Um, So that's what they do. And it's a a big deal because in, in 1984... This is the first time, because this is the a conference in Costa Rica, where all these European foreign ministers come together with Latin American foreign ministers. And this is the first time that Western European or the European community is, participates in an event outside of Europe. So it really shows the importance of Central America in the 1980s as well on a global scale. Um, so what the Europeans hope to achieve is basically by lending diplomatic and some financial support to this multilateral diplomatic initiative to weaken Reagan's foreign policy. But I do want to say that even though they disagreed with Reagan's methods, they did kind of agree with his ultimate aim. So they weren't necessarily supportive of the Sunni So it's kind of, yeah, um, <laughs> they had, they wanted, in the end, they wanted to weaken this kind of radical left, or, but to different means. Um, and in the end, that that worked out quite well for them. Kind of good cop bad cop strategy almost, even though it wasn't coordinated.
0: Thank you so much for that. So, um, obviously moving beyond the role of governments you focus a lot on solidarity groups and activists um, particularly western europeans and as you show and you've already alluded to the the relationship with the sandinista government and these groups was not always smooth so i was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about this phenomenon and particularly this relationship that seems to always be in flux
1: yeah great question thank you so Yeah, one of the things that I argue in a book that is really unique about the Sandinista's revolutionary diplomacy is that they did not just target governments, but they had this kind of, and they coordinated this transnational network of solidarity activists. So there were different solidarity committees in in different countries, and all of these were were united in a European network, and that was part of a, a global network. And they received direct instructions from the FSLM about campaigns. So this was really... This one was not just spontaneous outbursts of solidarity. This was part of their global the Sandinistas' global strategy, um, and and this worked out well. And I mean, these activists they were were keen to support the revolution. They were keen to support the Sandinistas. Um, so one uh, quite successful example is, for instance, the the literacy campaign, which uh, was in 1980, and because of the the fundraising by activists, the FSLM was able to, to fund that literacy campaign. And then in 1983 as well, there were the brigadistas, these people who went to Nicaragua to support the revolution, uh, to help with coffee picking, even though they weren't always as good at that, uh, as coffee picking. But they were there and it, it showed support. And when they came back, they continued with their solidarity work. Um, But there were also some some tensions. And I think... Uh, It stems from a a sentiment, a feeling that the FSLN also encouraged, and that's that these people were part of the revolution as well. So in order to mobilize international support, the FSLN created this kind of feeling of an international revolutionary family. Um, But then the FSLN also sometimes needed concrete uh, support. So there was, for instance, the Nicaragua Must Survive campaign, which is basically that the FSLN wanted money and goods. And these activists were not necessarily that enthusiastic about the idea of just doing more fundraising. They actually wanted to go to Nicaragua. They wanted to participate directly and they wanted to kind of have ownership over a project that that wasn't ultimately their own. So efforts by the Sandinistas to centralize the solidarity movement, they they were sometimes actively resisted by the activists who kept saying they wanted to move more political work instead of humanitarian work. Um, and they preferred uh, these kind of more intimate one relationships with, for instance, Nicaraguan cities. So that's kind of re- related to the, the growth of the sister cities, the uh, links that, that existed in the 80s. And it was also a means in a way to bypass the Sandinista central role by establishing direct connections with Nicaraguan towns, but also the schools or like fishing cooperatives. Like there were all sorts of, of connections that, that existed at the time. Uh, which were not necessarily unhelpful for the Sandinistas, but also if they wanted to coordinate their revolutionary diplomacy more directly, it made it difficult because it was less centralized than it could have been. Um, so that, that those are some of the tensions that existed.
0: Thank you so much for that. So moving on, the diplomatic relationship between Nicaragua and its Central American neighbors is an important piece of this work. Um, as you highlight such regional initiatives as the Conta process and the Esquipo Las Dos peace accords, what were these initiatives and how did they factor into the diplomatic strategy of the Sandinista government?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that, because we, so we haven't really talked about the Latin American story there before. And so um, so there's there's a great article and there's a great book coming out by Mateo Jaquín. Obviously, he looks more at, at the Latin American side of the story. Um, but I cover cover it in the book as well. But then, um, so Contadora was a, a Latin American initiative, um, which was targeted towards finding Latin American solutions for Latin American problems, as they would say. And it was basically a challenge as well to to Reagan's foreign policy, because it did not exclude the Sandinistas. So basically, the, the Sandinistas. As a part of regional negotiations, hoping to find a solution to the to this crisis in the region, um, and that was good news for the Sandinistas because they they didn't want to be isolated. So the Sandinistas went along with these Contadora initiatives because it provided them with legitimacy with with platform. So that was good news because that delegitimized Reagan's foreign policy, and it's also one of the key claims of Contadora was that. Um, Again, the social economic inequalities were the reason for the violence and not the Cold War interference. So that worked out well for the FSLN. Um, and then ultimately Contadora failed um, in part because of US resistance to Contadora. So, for instance, when the FSLN signed was or said they would sign the Contadora uh, Act in 1984, in, immediately, like there was this massive campaign to make sure that that wasn't going to go forward. But in the end, I think the Sandinistas weren't that hopeful for Conte, Contadora to to succeed either. For them, it was a means to present themselves in a good light on a global scale. Um, but that was different with Esquipulas, because Esquipulas was a Central American initiative that followed on from Contadora somewhere in the late 1980s, and then in 1987, There was a successful Esquipulas meeting with with the five Central American presidents when they commit to kind of bringing peace. Um, And it was a bit different from Contadora in that it focused also on not just on arms and outside interference, but also on democratization. Um, And that was so that was kind of uh, meddling in internal affairs, which is what the FSLM first did not want. But then in the late 1980s, when the situation just got basically worse the FSL didn't have much options so they went along with esquipulas so this was and the the, and that was it was a good option but it was also the only option and as i say in the book as well like um the other Central american countries that were very critical of the, of the Sandinistas, they could profit from that because the FSL needed esquipulas so, within the Esquipolis framework, there could be pressure on Nicaragua, and the spotlight was continuously on Nicaragua. Um, but it did mean that the revolution had a chance to survive because, again, it meant that, um, that there was a rejection of the United States' more military foreign policy. Um, and the Europeans basically backed those initiatives. Uh, so, again, this was kind of a whole a Latin, American, it was a Latin American initiative with European backing that did mean a rejection of the United States power in the region, which is why it was great for the FSLN. But it did mean that the FSLN had to to make concessions regarding democracy, but also regarding negotiations with the contrast, for instance, something they initially refused to do. Thanks so much. So
0: um, you already mentioned this or alluded to it. um, And as someone who does uh, Cuba, this probably um, explains why I have this question. Uh, as a reader, I was particularly surprised to read a book about a Cold War era left-wing Latin American government that mentioned Cuba sparingly, as this book did. So I really wanted to ask you about uh, what the role of Cuba was in the diplomatic choices that the Sandinista government ultimately made, as well as kind of outsider imaginings. Like, for example, you use the language of Brigaista um, for mm-hmm. Europeans going to Cuba. There were plenty of Brigaistas that went to Cuba as well um the outsider imaginings of what sandinistas sought to to implement in nicaragua
1: yeah great question thank you um so yeah cuba is is not as as present uh in the book it is present i went to like the cuban foreign ministry archives as well and they, those were really useful um but i think when i started the research and i went to nicaragua the first thing that that most people i interviewed told me so it's like, well. We were we were independent. Like we, the Cubans were there, but we made the the decision. So that was something that they continuously stressed. And actually, looking back, that that surprised me a little bit because I I never really thought thought otherwise. But it was interesting that they felt the need to like remind me of that. Um, and I mean, Emily Snyder has written like, excellent works on like the Cuban Nicaraguan um, relationship as well. And, and that shows, and the Cuban archives show that this is just an intimate relationship. So the Cuban foreign ministry and the Nicaraguan foreign ministry they, they collaborated closely, but also the way the, the Cubans trained Nicaraguan diplomats, the, the Nicaraguan foreign ministry was very much modeled on the Cuban model there. And so this was an intimate relationship. Um, but also, obviously, the Cubans were kind of financially limited in what in what they could provide. And um for me, the again, this this wasn't particularly surprising that the Cubans would support the sandinistas. Um this was like what you would expect, like you you expected it as well. And um, but I think before the revolution succeeded, there were more struggles, military struggles going on. And it took a while before the FSLN, before it became clear that the FSLN could actually triumph, that they could actually defeat Somoza. Um, So there, I think in the beginning, it was the Sandinistas themselves that developed that that international strategy. But then Fido Castro and the Cubans obviously played a big role in uniting these FSLN factions and also advising the Sandinistas about what what to do and avoid kind of how they would... Say this or the mistakes that they made in the past. So uh, there's one section in the book where I talk about this Eddie Eddie Cool, who travels to Europe and he meets the Cuban ambassador in Denmark, when I'm uh, not mistaken, or Sweden, I don't remember. Uh, and he says, like, okay, make sure that you build relationships and that you don't become isolated as we did. So kind of memories of what happened to the Cuban revolution also shape Nicaraguan foreign policy. Uh, so in that way, I think Cuba is very present in the book because similarly it really uh, informs the way the Western Europeans behave because constantly the language of also the fear of the Cuban Missile Crisis repeating itself but also of Nicaragua becoming isolated. So kind of the specter of the Cuban revolution is definitely there. And then, sorry, I forgot what was the other part of the question about um, so
0: also like outsider imaginings of what the Sandinistas sought to implement in Nicaragua and how um, Cuba impacted those.
1: Yeah, so specifically on on the brigadistas. Uh, so I I didn't come across like many direct reference to people going to Cuba. The only like clear was obviously the literacy crusade, which was like Fernando Cardenal and they, and and after they went. Or Ernesto Guevara, they went to or Cuba to look at like the the museum there and to look at how the Cubans like did their literacy campaign. So that was like directly inspired by the Cuban Revolution and this kind of the difference. Obviously, was the the Nicaraguan one had this uh, Christian. It was called a literacy crusade, not a campaign. So in the Nicaraguan Revolution, there was much more this kind of liberation theology present uh, than in the Cuban Revolution. Very interesting. So
0: um, obviously, you've talked about foreigners going to Nicaragua quite a bit. So I won't ask you about that again. But Mm -hmm. you do also have multiple instances in the book of Nicaraguan government representatives going to Europe um, to speak to um, like uh, solidarity groups. So could you tell us a little bit more about this phenomenon of of Nicaraguan uh, representatives going out and doing this type of outreach?
1: Yeah, of course. So in in the in the book's first chapter, you obviously have Nicaraguan exiles living in Europe, but not all of them are exiles. Some are also just students, and then um, they play key roles in in setting up this transnational solidarity uh, network. So Enrique Schmidt is is a key figure, um, and he was he was based in West Germany, and he um, was part of the Chile solidarity movement there. But then he kind of pushes people towards uh, creating Nicaragua Solidarity Committees, and then together with um, Angel Baragón. Angel Baragón is a Spanish priest and he um, lived in Nicaragua, but then because of Somoza, he went back to Spain and he played a big role in creating this transnational network as well. Um, so these Nicaraguan exiles and Nicaraguan exchange students or foreign exchange students, they They play a big role in in the initial setting up of the network, um, particularly by just uniting, traveling around and putting people in touch with each other and really creating these European conferences where people could meet and coordinate. But then obviously when the revolution triumphed, they don't want to stay in Europe, they go back to Nicaragua. And then there is a bit of a vacuum because there are no Nicaraguan representatives to, to speak to. And then in the 80s, what we see is just quite often like quite high-ranking Nicaraguan officials traveling to Western Europe and, and doing these tours. Um, so one famous visit is obviously when Daniel Ortega goes to the Soviet Union, and there's massive outcry. And then he realized, oh, better go to Western Europe as well. So he kind of combines his, his Eastern European tour with, with visits to Western Europe. But what we also often see is that they send uh, Sergio Ramirez, who was one of more the civilian figure in the government to Western Europe, but Thomas Borger, for instance, went to the East at the same time. And then they refer to each other's trips, So they use again this Cold War framework to 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 create support for the revolution.
0: Thanks so much for that. So um moving on the choice by the Sandinista government uh, to hold elections, which also differentiates it from like the Cuba case, for example, in 1984 and 1990 factor largely into the story. So I was wanting to ask you, um, from a diplomatic standpoint, why these elections were held, as well as the differences between the two.
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. So yeah, there were two elections, nineteen eighty-four and nineteen ninety. There were lots of similarities between them, but also differences. I think before like going into that, the a key thing to say is that um before the eighty-four election, there was very clear uh, that um, the Sandinistas believed that in a different form of, of democracy, not kind of the Western Reagan style, like democracy is elections and freedom of the press. They had like this they idea they of participated. Democracy, um, they constantly said like the people have already made their choice with blood, so there was there was it was different. It was the idea of like continuously talking and and influencing the revolution from below. So that was the idea. So the idea of holding elections was something that the West really pushed for, but it's something that says that did not necessarily want. But then after the invasion of Grenada in nineteen eighty three, like fears of kind of U.S intervention or the war escalating run really high. And then there is this sense that there, there needs to be they need to make concessions, basically, and organizing elections is one of them. So they organize these elections as kind of to show the international environment that, that this these are legitimate. This is a legitimate revolution. This is kind of a seal of approval. So um but in 1984, that, that doesn't really succeed. That doesn't really work uh, as they wanted to. So it was uh, even though they invited like observers from around the world to observe the elections. And some countries did send observers, like the Netherlands, for instance. But even those observers, when they produced reports that were quite positive, governments would still say, well, that's not really... Representative, like these, this, these weren't really fair and free elections, and they say that even like you know, in the months leading up to the elections already. So, particularly the U.S. government is really of the view that because this is a Marxist Leninist state, there just can't be real democracy because these are mutually exclusive. Um, and Michael William Smith, he has written an excellent book about, like, writes about that in his book as well, about democracy promotion and how this kind of specific U.S. view of democracy really makes sure that the Sandinistas can never be seen as democratic uh, there. Um, and then as well in 1984, the main opposition party, they pull out of the elections and they cite that these are not taking place in a free affair, like open environment. So they ultimately these these 1984 elections they do not achieve their objective of of creating more legitimacy even though they're not like fully rejected everywhere but it's more yeah they don't they do not yeah they would have hoped for more basically especially because they were hoping for more financial aid after the elections and that just just doesn't really happen and then 1990 elections are are, are different because they first of all they take place within this Escipula's framework. So they're a concession that the Sandinistas make to their Central American neighbors, organizing elections. Um Reagan is no longer in power, but Bush is. And um but like the nineteen eighty four elections, these are also again for the international seal of approval. And so the FSLM puts in a lot of effort to make to convince International environment that they these are open and fair and honest elections, and um, that seems to work because um, there is increasingly kind of a consensus that even though things are not perfect in Nicaragua, these elections tend to be free and fair. And one of the reasons that more kind of right wing governments are willing to say that is also because the, the they believe not like they're not too optimistic, but there is some hope that the UNO. The opposition coalition led by Vileta Tachamoro can actually win here. So there weren't opinion polls in Nicaragua, but they did some like secret ones and they were quite optimistic. Um but the, the solidarity movements and the Sandinistas and the Soviet Union, the Cubans, they really did, they were fully convinced that the FSLA would easily win. Um so because of that, that was, I think. If the elections would have gone differently, then there was a real chance that there would be the international legitimacy that they as Sandinistas were fighting for since nineteen seventy nine. but that doesn't obviously doesn't happen because they lose these elections, um, particularly, I think because the economic situation on the ground is just fully different and fully escalated. Um, and in eighty four, there was still hope for Western European aid, but now, as I mentioned already, there was very little aid being given to Nicaragua because people were waiting, well, let's wait until after the elections before decisions are made. Um, so the, the economic situation doesn't improve. Um, similarly, the Contra war, while since 1988 is not like as present, the Contras are not demobilized, so, so there's a constant fear of the, the war kind of escalating again. The military draft is, I think, still in place. So I think the idea that life is going to improve under further FSLN rule is just kind of gone by that time, um, so that's uh, the kind of the end of the the story there.
0: Thanks so much for that. So, um, following electoral defeat, what does the FSLN look like in Nicaragua?
1: Ah, well, uh, so obviously, immediately following uh, the election. There's a lot of internal debate. So there is a peaceful transfer of power. Chamorro takes over. And with the FSLN, there is a soon, quite soon, there is a split. So on the one hand, you have Sergio Ramirez, who kind of moves toward a more the social democratic Sandinista movement, the Movimiento Renovador Sandinista. And then you have the FSLN, which is increasingly led by Ortega. And they uh, they come back to power in 2006, seven and are in power still. Um, and then obviously, uh, as, I, as I, and I say in the book's conclusion as well, like in 2018, there's popular protests and, against uh, the Sandinista government, which is, and it heavily cracks down, like hundreds of people are killed by the police. Um, so it's it's become increasingly authoritarian. Um, but I haven't done like the primary resource. I'm not an expert on like post 1990 Nicaragua, but that's, I was there for the final bit of my research uh, when that that happened.
0: Thanks so much for that. It um, really contextualizes um today uh, the situation in Nicaragua as well. So, uh, in your conclusion, you point out that the government led by the FSLN survived longer than Salvador Allende's government in Chile, and that Mm -hmm. Nicaragua ultimately did not face an invasion from the U.S., like Grenada in 83 or Panama in 89. So, I really wanted to ask you, kind of in your view, why is it that Nicaragua, alluding to your title, uh, survived longer than these other cases?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think that that really goes to the heart of the of the Bukowski argument, and that is because of the Sandinistas' revolutionary diplomacy, the revolution survived for for as long as it did. And I think, well, we shouldn't really. I think we shouldn't underestimate like the global impact that the revolution had and the, and the popularity. I think I I emailed like colleagues within like the the humanities here about my my book talk uh, a while back. And I got like three emails back from people saying, oh, Nicaragua, I was there in the 1980s. Like, I think, in, in I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I think at that time, like, it was like, the cause that people uh, associated with. Like, people had posted Nicaragua mugs, Nicaragua must survive, was like, it was present. And I think that had a lot to do with the, with the revolution survival, that it, it was so popular and it had such a global impact. Um, and and that makes it. Th- I mean, there are many other differences with with Chile and Grenada and Panama. Obviously, like the Sandinistas, unlike Guyana, they had power. Oh, they had the army. Um, the U.S. played a very different role. I think Reagan's kind of hostile and aggressive policy helped to popularize the Sandinistas abroad because this. I mean, we haven't talked about the, the peace movement, for instance, but there was so much kind of fear of Reagan, kind of basically make starting the Cold War anil and, and and nuclear uh, war, that this kind of idea that what he was doing in, in Central America was just another one of his like weird, dangerous foreign policies with, with deathly consequences. So that 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 narrative was really powerful. Uh and that fear was really real. Um, so that was obviously different. And then I mean there was no Panama Canal in Nicaragua, so it was less in that sense relevant in in terms of security. It wasn't an island like Grenada. So there were all these kind of other factors. But I think the key thing is that that the Sandinistas did implement that pragmatic foreign policy, that they were so creative, the cultural appeal of the revolution um, and how they were able to mobilize that and link that to similar foreign policies. Because Foreign governments took that into account. They took the, the popularity of the Sanists into account when formulating a foreign policy. And in the end, the Cold War as well was, as many have said, like it was a struggle of a hearts and mind. And that struggle for a for a long time was definitely won by the revolutionaries. Um thanks so much for that.
0: Um so I always like to conclude. Um by asking the authors a bit about what they're currently working on. So if you have any projects that you'd like to share, we'd love to hear about them.
1: Yeah. uh, So I'm starting, starting a new project, which um, I hope is going to be on Central American peace process. So um, I want to kind of, I just noticed that there is a lot of rather triumphant cold war IR literature about the peace process and how it ended the civil wars, but also a whole, Fascinating literature on violence in contemporary Latin America, and that the, actually the peace process didn't bring the peace. So I would just like to write kind of a, a history of that period, just not just focusing on, on Nicaragua, but also hopefully on El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, and kind of the end of the Cold War and and what it meant on the ground, as well as kind of looking at international organizations, such as the UN uh, involvement there. But it's very early days. Well, I
0: think I speak for everybody when we say we're looking forward to to seeing the fruit of that research. So thank you again. This has been Alina Van Omen, author of Nicaragua Must Survive, Sandinista Revolutionary Diplomacy in the Global Cold War. You can get the book via University of California Press. Thank you so much, Alina.
1: Thank you.